For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this evening, Salvation Belongs to Our God. This is part three, Revelation chapter seven, verses nine through 17. So I'm grateful to be back with you tonight in the book of Revelation and in our exposition of this just magnificent book. And uh, as we're working through Revelation now, we're considering in the book, in the flow of the book, in the, the structure of the book, we're considering the second of seven literary cycles found in the book of Revelation. And in the process of working through this second of seven literary cycles, we're working through the interlude here at the end of chapter 7, verses 9 through 17, and that's at the very end of this second cycle. Um, So we're about to enter into the third cycle found in chapter 8. For now, we're working through an interlude, and the interlude is, is basically answering the question, who are these? Who are these arrayed in white with palm branches in their hands? Who are these people? These this multitude, this innumerable multitude gathered around the throne of God, worshiping him. Who are these? How is it that we are able to stand before the throne, right? It's answering that question raised by the elder, uh, as we saw in chapter six, who is able to stand, uh, raised now by the elder in chapter seven, who are these who are arrayed in white robes? Where do they come from? The interlude of chapter 7 essentially answers that question. In the vision given to John, uh, recorded in the pages of Scripture, um, we've been given access, as it were, to the worship of heaven. Uh, We get to see behind the curtain, as it were, at the multitudes around the throne worshiping God. And as we've established, what we're seeing here in chapter 7, beginning in verse 9 through the end of the chapter, is the church triumphant. It's the church uh, in victory, the church in her rest, the church gathered around the throne of God, worshiping in his presence. Verse 9, made up of a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, all standing before the throne and before the Lamb, in the very presence of God, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Now, in fulfillment, as we've talked about, in fulfillment of the language contained in God's covenant promises to Abraham, it is an innumerable host. Uh, As innumerable as the stars are in heaven, as innumerable of all the grains of sands on the beaches of the world, uh, on the seashores. Uh, An innumerable host. And in part two on this text now, we began to consider then the identity of this group in answer to that elder's question in verse 13. Who are these? Right? Who are these arrayed in white robes? Where do they come from? John answers and says to him, sir, you know. And the elder then identifies this group, uh, identified in chapter 4. First, one of those elders identified in chapter 4 is one of the 24 representatives of the church. Uh, that elder then gives two identifying characteristics of this particular group around the throne. One, from verse 14, they are the ones who come out of the great tribulation They're the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And two, these are the ones who have washed their robes white, made them white in the blood of the lamb. The prophet Daniel 
as we looked at last time together, the prophet Daniel was told of a period of great tribulation in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, the prophet says, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Now that great tribulation period, we know, as we've looked at texts before, that great tribulation period comprises the church age. That period of time between the, second, the first and second advents of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Paul calls them these last days, perilous times, Tribulation from within the church, tribulation from without, and what the Lord described as the beginning of sorrows or the beginning of birth pains is what that word refers to. Those birth pains beginning in the first century and those birth pains increasing in frequency and in severity until the Lord's return at the birth of a new age. That tribulation period lasting from the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to his second coming. When Paul and Barnabas were returning from their first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas uh, decided to go back through the churches, back through the areas where, where they had preached the gospel, and they determined to strengthen the disciples that were there. And it says, he says in Acts 14, verse 22, that strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, Paul said, Acts 14, 22, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Now tonight, however, we've considered the first. These are those who come out of the great tribulation. Tonight, we want to consider the second of two identifying characteristics of this innumerable multitude around the throne. First, they've come out of that period of great tribulation. Second, they are the ones who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So we're going to spend some time this evening and look at that second identifying characteristic. And it's directly related to the first, okay? How is it that these saints gathered around the throne of God have made it through the great tribulation as overcomers? How have they made it through the great tribulation as overcomers? How is it that they are seen there worshiping the living God with palm branches in their hand? It's because they are the ones who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. See how these two things are connected, right? The Lord Jesus Christ, the lamb, has given them victory. Notice their victory cry in verse 10. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. God who sits on the throne and the lamb have secured their salvation. And Christ now, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Christ now always leads them in triumph. Right Now we see their white robes referenced also in, in Revelation chapter 19. Turn there with me, Revelation chapter 19. And let's let Revelation 19 now inform our understanding of these white robes that we see them clothed in, Revelation 7. Revelation 19, beginning there in verse 6. In verse 6, John says, I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints." So we see that where that picture comes from, don't we? What that, those white robes signify. That, those white robes signify their righteousness. Here they signify 
the righteous acts of the saints. Verse 11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses." We're talking about the saints, and we're talking about the saints, the church, the bride of Christ, clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the elder asked the question in Revelation chapter 7, verse 13, who are these, right? Who are these arrayed in white robes? Where do they come from? Brothers and sisters, these are the saints of God. Uh, this is you and I at that time, praise God. The bride of Christ, the church, the people of God, they've come out of their wilderness testing. They've come out of the great tribulation, and it has been granted to them, the saints of God, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it has been granted to them to be arrayed in white. Fine linen, clean and bright. You can think about that in context with your sin. Amen, what a joy, what a tremendous privilege, what a blessing, what a blessing the people of God have to be cleansed of their sin, to be forgiven of their guilt, right? To be no longer condemned, no longer under the curse of the Lord, of, of the law, but by the Lord Jesus Christ made pure, made white, cleansed. Awesome thought, right? Fine linen, clean and bright. That white clean, bright linen signifies the righteous acts of the saints. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, we have no righteous acts. Amen? There's nothing that we do that we could say. We tuck our thumbs on our overall straps and say, what I've done is righteous. Not a thing. Amen? Not one thing. But the bride of Christ made righteous by the blood of the Lamb, by the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. His righteousness imputed, given as a gift by God's grace to us, credited to us, so that we can stand before the throne of God in that day and say, in Jesus Christ, I've been made righteous. To stand before God, in the presence of God, and worship him as righteous. What an awesome, awesome, awesome privilege. Now first... Their robes are described in chapter 7 as having been washed clean. They have been cleansed. Verse 14, these tribulation saints washed their robes and made them white. Now, if you're looking at the language, the verbs there are aorist indicatives. They imply an action that has taken place in the past, and that past time action, think with me now, that past time action indicated by the nature of the cleansing agent. What is the cleansing agent? The cleansing agent is the blood of the lamb. Okay, so what is that past time action that has taken place where the blood of the lamb is applied to the sinner whereby his robes are made white? We're talking about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary. That's what we're talking about, right? In other words, the language points to the time when these disciples of Jesus Christ turned from their sin, embraced the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, and it was at that time, through faith, that the cleansing agent of the blood of the Lamb was applied to their filthy garments, and they made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Do you see? It's a reference to that time when the blood of Christ was applied through faith. The blood of Christ is a figure of speech here to refer to um, a metonymy. Apart for the whole, 
In other words, the blood of Christ refers to the whole atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ in its fullness. In its fullness. Part signifying the whole. The blood of the Lamb, a reference to the perfect, complete, and sufficient atoning, substitutionary atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ for his people. The idea of their garments or their robes being cleansed by blood. It's an interesting word picture there, isn't it? A common biblical theme to Christians. We understand exactly what's being said, exactly what's being denoted by that, don't we? It signifies their righteousness. And again, it's an imputed righteousness, a gifted righteousness. It's not their own righteousness. It's a gift given to them. It it signifies their moral purity. Those who were formerly impure, undeserving sinners, now these white robes reflecting their moral purity. The forgiveness of all their sins, right? The forgiveness of all their guilt. They are fine linen, clean and white and bright. Listen to Isaiah chapter one, verse 16, listen. The prophet says, wash yourselves, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Praise God. I praise God. The imagery is that of being cleansed from sin, is that of being forgiven. And in this case, in this case, going much further than just forgiveness. We're not just forgiven of our sin, we're then clothed with righteousness, clothed with robes that don't belong to us, so to speak. It's the righteousness of another that we are clothed in. We're clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 3. Let's see another picture of this. Zechariah chapter 3. I love this imagery. Certainly in Revelation, here also in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 3. Look there beginning in verse 1. Well, first, uh, look at chapter 2 with me. The Lord first tells Zechariah, uh, the prophet, of his plans to restore Israel. This is another text dealing with the restoration of the nation of Israel. And in chapter 2, verse 10, the Lord says this, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst. Awesome. <laughs> That's where we're all headed. We want to dwell in the midst of the Lord. We want the Lord to dwell in the midst of his people forever. We want to be in his presence. So this is a promise that the Lord gives of restoring his people to himself. Israel has been disobedient to the covenant. God is not faithful, faithless to his word. He will keep his promises. And so this is a promise of restoration. And what is um, hidden or difficult to understand at this point in redemptive history is that that restoration will include the Gentiles and will include a multitude, which no one can number, from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. Verse 11, many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people. We're talking about the inclusion of the Gentiles, you and I. And I will dwell in your midst. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. He has set himself to the work and he will accomplish it. Amen? So again, 
It's not the, the, the end or the, the ultimate plan, the ultimate aim is not simply a restoration of Jewish Christians, right? But again, a multitude, which no one can number, of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. This is also the inclusion of the Gentiles. What he has pictured here is the church, do you see? Chapter 3, verse 1 then. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then, then, he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. That enemy, that adversary. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this Joshua, right? Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua, standing by, was clothed, verse 3, with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. We're pictured there with Joshua, aren't we? Before the Lord saves us, clothed with filthy garments. Verse 4, then he answered and he spoke to those who stood before him saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, see, I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by. You have this beautiful transformation that takes place, right? We see Joshua there, the high priest, Joshua in filthy garments, his filthy garments taken away, clean, white, fine and bright linen robes given to Joshua, clean garments, clean turban placed upon his head. And we see this transformation. The people of the lamb, the saints, those who make up the church, the bride of Christ, start out filthy, start out filthy, polluted, corrupted by sin. And through the atoning work of our Lord Jesus Christ at the cross, they have all their sin forgiven, their filthy garments are removed, and then much more, they're found to be clothed. Clothed in rich, white, clean, bright robes. Robes that signify a righteousness that is not their own, but the righteousness of another that has been given to them through the means of faith. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ through faith. I love the, um, the description of that clothing, if you will, from Mark chapter 9, verse 2. Jesus there, it's a, uh, an account of the, the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus took Peter, James, and John, led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. <laughs> I like that. I think it's just a great description. And it's, it's almost as if language is simply not sufficient to describe the whiteness and the brightness of them, right? So all Mark can do is say, like, listen, no launderer on earth could possibly get them that white, that gleaming. And that's how white and gleaming they were. Awesome, right? That's, the, that's a picture here of the saints around the throne in Revelation 7, clothed in white robes. We're used to say, we just got back from uh, West Virginia up there in the snow all week, and you look close enough at that snow, it's, it's not completely white. <laughs> it's not, a lot of it is just, you know, it's not even a pretty white. <laughs> and after a while, it gets really filthy. Not so with these white robes, with this whiteness, right? This clean, fine, bright linen. Language is just insufficient to describe it. It's like no launderer on earth could possibly make it that white. And that's describing the righteous acts of the saints, that righteousness given to them as a gift 
the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Further, however, further, in addition to that, those white robes also signify the outcome of their faith. And I want us to get this. I want us to understand this tonight. White robes, not only signifying that one-time imputed gift of righteousness from the Lord Jesus Christ, but also those white robes signifying the outcome of their faith as worthy and as righteous. And I want you to see that from the text. Those robes signifying a faithful, fruitful, persevering, overcoming witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14, the elder says, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. In other words, those dressed in white robes are the overcomers. They've not just been imputed the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, but these are those who have overcome, they've come out of the great tribulation. Revelation chapter 3 verse 4. In the Lord's address to the church at Sardis, the Lord says in Revelation 3, 4, that there are few, there are a few in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. Do you remember that letter? And they walk with the Lord in white. Why is it that they walk there in white? The Lord says, because they are worthy. In other words, to walk with the Lord in white is to be counted worthy by overcoming. In other words, those in Sardis who have not endured as a faithful and persevering witness for the Lord Jesus Christ are those who have soiled their garments. Yet there are a few that remain in Sardis who have not soiled their garments because they have persevered through trial and through testing and have not defiled their garments. They walk with the Lord in white for they are worthy. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. So clothed in white robes, clothed in white garments, also considers or signifies the outcome of their faith. The outcome of their faith as genuine saving faith. The outcome of their faith as fruitful faith. Their response to the temptation, their response to compromise in the face of persecution, their response to the temptation to shrink back in the face of suffering has been to persevere as a witness for Jesus Christ in faith to the end. In other words, persecution is coming from within the church, uh, error, trial, difficulty, adversity from within the church, and persecution from without the church. The enemies of God assaulting the church. The people of God face persecution from within, and they face persecution from without. As they face temptation in the face of that suffering to compromise, Those genuine believers, those with genuine saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, persevere in the face of that suffering, persevere in the face of that adversity, and are preserved through it. They are the ones who are overcomers, and as a result of their overcoming, their overcoming proves the genuineness of their faith. They are worthy to walk in white. They have been those who persevere as a witness for Jesus Christ in faith to the end. If that fine linen white and clean, signifies the righteous acts of the saints, Revelation chapter 19, then those righteous acts are the expression of a true and genuine and saving faith. Do you see? A true faith by which they were justified. A true faith by which they were cleansed from their sin. Genuine faith, in other words, endures and produces fruit. Genuine faith perseveres and produces fruitfulness and obedience. A genuine faith endures, perseveres in fruitfulness and in faithfulness until the end. Those, 
those are defined as the overcomers. He who overcomes, he'll walk with me in white. Ungodly compromise, in other words, is the character of a counterfeit faith. Ungodly, unfaithful compromise is the character of a counterfeit faith. G.K. Beale said this, the tribulation has refined their faith as if by fire, right? The tribulation has refined their faith. It has tested them and their perseverance through trial has proven their faith as genuine. That's why the martyrs under the altar in Revelation chapter six, verse nine, were given white robes. They're the overcomers. To the point of death, they were the overcomers. Those who were slain because of the word of God, those who were slain because of the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, which they held, that testimony which they maintained and persevered in, and they were given a white robe in verse nine. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. Let me give you another example of this. And again, what we find are these Old Testament prophets informing our understanding of Revelation it's definitely going to be the case in many, many of these passages coming from the book of Daniel, from the book of Ezekiel, from the book of Zechariah. Here we find another text in Daniel chapter 11. And again, in Daniel chapter 11, speaking of what is an end times eschatological time period under the rule of a typological king, we find this in verse 32. Verse 32. Those who do wickedly against the covenant he shall corrupt with flattery, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. In other words, by tribulation, do you see? People of God are going to suffer tribulation. People of God are going to suffer difficulty. Now, verse 34, when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help but many shall join with them by intrigue. Some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white. In other words, what is the outcome of this time of testing? What is the outcome of this tribulation? It's to refine the people of God. We know that we're, we're sanctified through suffering. The Lord is gracious not to... Um, in other words, the Lord is using every difficulty that you face for your sanctification, for your further refining, for your maturity. We grow in the soil of adversity. And so the Lord is using that adversity to refine you, to purify your faith. So count it joy, brothers, when you fall into various trials, knowing that it's the testing of your faith that produces perseverance, that produces endurance. And we are charged by God to be overcomers. It's that tribulation, that difficulty that refines us, that purifies us, that, in the words of Daniel, in the words of Revelation, that makes us white. And it happens in verse 35, until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed times. Daniel chapter 12, look there at verse 7. Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the rivers, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And listen, when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. So despite the claims of one eschatological position or another, uh, things don't get better and better and better. Uh, the Bible, I think, is really, really clear that things continue to get worse and worse and worse. 
until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. In other words, when the Lord Jesus Christ says in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, that these things are the beginnings of birth pains, what he's referring to is during a period of tribulation, that period that we know to be a period between the first coming and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, those birth pains are going to increase in frequency and in severity, and then the end will come. As the Lord says himself, Matthew 24, at that time, immediately after the tribulation of those days, there will come a time of tribulation, of great tribulation, such as never has been before nor ever will be again, and then you will see the Son of Man return on the clouds of heaven. Verse 8, although I heard, Daniel says, I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, verse 9, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many, through this period, this time of trouble, this great tribulation, this period that will end with the power of God's people almost completely shattered, During this period, verse 10, many shall be purified, made white, and refined. But the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. How is it, Daniel chapter 11, Daniel chapter 12, Revelation chapter 7, how is it that these have been made white? In one part, in its principal part, in its complete part, through the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that imputed righteousness, through faith, produces fruits. And one of the fruits that that imputed righteousness produces is a perseverance and endurance to the end. That through a true faith, made white through tribulation, through difficulty, through adversity. So then in Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, regarding the identifying characteristic of those who are a part of that great and innumerable multitude worshiping around the throne with palm branches in their hand, these are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's a reference to the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a reference to his imputed or gifted righteousness given to them as a gift of grace through faith. It's a reference to his own preservation of them through trials, refining trials and purifying tribulations. It's a reference to the genuineness of their faith, which is much more precious than gold which perishes. These are the saints of God. These are the overcomers. They're the ones who have put their hand to the plow and have not turned back, no matter the consequences. And in all that, these are the ones who are united to their elder brother who endured through suffering for them. And it's in this way that they're joyfully united with him. Reminded of the words from Paul in Philippians chapter three, where Paul is considering that and the joy of that. And in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, What things were gained to me, verse 7, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, so that, verse 10, I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead in other words brothers and sisters it's not been only granted to us to believe but also to suffer for his sake 
we've been granted to suffer for his sake. We are, we partake of the fellowship of his sufferings. And it's one of the, the, the glorious um, ways in which we have been united to Jesus Christ that we will for an eternity bless and praise him for, that we were counted worthy to suffer for his name. I love that picture of the disciples. Disciples being arrested, uh, drug into court, beaten, scourged, and then freed. And they went out from there, what does the Bible say? Rejoicing, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for his name. These are the overcomers. These are those who have been united to their Lord Jesus Christ and have partaken of the fellowship of his suffering. Those who did not shrink back or compromise. They didn't put their hand to the plow and then turn back. Uh, These are those who have persevered to the end. These are the overcomers. These are the many sons that he is bringing to glory. The captain of their salvation, not ashamed to call them brethren, because he has partaken of flesh and blood, suffered on their behalf, and now they suffer in him, with him. Now, it would be odd for most people to hear of someone washing their garments in blood to cleanse them and to make them white. But that's not an odd picture to us, is it? We see the significance of that. We've been united together with him, we will suffer with him, and we will be raised with him. What does that encourage us then, brothers and sisters, to do? How should we then think about these things and how should that impact the way that we live our lives? Listen, persevere to the end. (laughs) Endure suffering as a good soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't turn back. Do not turn to the right hand. Do not turn to the left hand. Don't slow down. Press forward. Press on. We have every reason given to us to persevere to the end in faith to cling to Christ by faith and to labor and to persevere and to endure and to labor and to work in his vineyard. Persevere to the end. Therefore, seven, verse, uh, chapter seven, verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. Why is that? It's because they've been forgiven of their sin. Further, they have been made righteous through the person and work of the Son. Further, they have endured with that faith. They have endured through their great tribulation. They have been made to walk with him in white. The demands of God's law have been satisfied. The wrath toward them for their sin has been propitiated. All the reasons for the enmity have been taken out of the way. And the father loves them as he loves his own son. Therefore, they're before the throne. That's why they stand in the presence of God before the throne and God himself dwells among them. Verse 16, they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat for the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What you see in verses 15, 16, and 17 is the consummated end or aim of all things. That all terminates upon the glory of God, you see? All to the praise of the glory of his grace into the ages, to the praise of his glory. But this is the consummated end or uh, termination, if you will, of all of God's redemptive plans and purposes for a redeemed humanity to worship his son. The elect of God, the church, in the presence of God forever. And what are they found doing in verse 15? They serve him day and night in his temple. 
That, brothers and sisters, is a fulfillment of God's promise to make us a royal priesthood. You see the connection, the connection between his temple and the priesthood, right? Where do the priests serve? They serve in his temple. This is a picture of the people of God, an innumerable host of, uh, an innumerable host of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation as royal priests serving God in his temple day and night. Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God is going to fulfill that mandate. He's going to fulfill it in his people, including the Gentiles from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Revelation 1, verse 6, he has made us kings and priests. That's a royal priesthood, right? He's made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. No more is the priesthood restricted to a few sons of Aaron, limited number, but all of God's people, all of God's people are consecrated to serve in his temple. All of God's people are consecrated as priests, serving him in his temple day and night. Means continuously, in eternity. The Lord says, he who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. Awesome thought. He'll not go out anymore. Why? Because he's going to be serving God into the age, into the ages, day and night in his temple as a royal priest to our God. And this is not referring to a physical building, mind you. We're not looking for some physical building to be rebuilt in a little strip of land on the east side of the Mediterranean. That's not what we're looking for here. This is referring to the dwelling place or the presence of the living God in the midst of his people. What does the temple signify? It signifies the dwelling, a dwelling place of God by his spirit. It signifies the presence of God. So we're not to be concerned with whether or not a physical building is going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. That's a, biblical, a misunderstanding of biblical theology. The physical temple was a physical picture of a spiritual reality. The temple related to the presence of God as he dwelt in the midst of his people. The temple, the temple pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ himself who dwelt among his people. The Lord Jesus Christ tabernacled among us. So the temple pointed forward to Jesus Christ himself. All the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him bodily, Colossians chapter 2 verse 9. He tabernacled among us. We beheld his glory. And he said, destroy this temple. And what will I do? I'll raise it up in three days. Then Paul and the New Testament authors refer to who as the temple after that? The church, the body of Christ, the people of God themselves. They are the temple of God. Why? Because they have become the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. God himself dwells in you by his Spirit. That's why there's no physical building today. It's a spiritual building being raised up stone upon stone to proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness, right? into his marvelous light. And then, Revelation 21, verse 22, speaking of the new Jerusalem, John says, Revelation 21 there, I saw no temple in it. Why, John? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now, what does that signify? There's no temple in it because God is dwelling amongst his people. Right? God, his presence in the midst of his people the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of his people, our elder brother singing praises with us around the throne. In other words, God will dwell with us. We will dwell with him. There is no need for a temple. There's no physical building we're looking for. The presence of God will be with his people. 
Awesome fulfillment of all that imagery, do you see? And that's a, a biblical theological theme that runs from Genesis to Revelation. And we see what that theme entails and what it points to and what it eventuates into the glory of God. That's the way that biblical theology works. All right? We see that glorious picture of God in the presence of his people for all eternity. The new creation will be a temple paradise of God. Why is the new creation a temple paradise of God? Because God will inhabit it with his presence. He'll be in the midst of his people forever. An awesome thought. This is the fulfillment of all of those promises of God to restore Israel, right? When you're reading in the Old Testament, when you're reading your Bible, you're walking through all those prophecies and you see the promise of God, the promise of God, the promise of God to restore Israel, to establish his kingdom, to put his king on the throne. You see those, this is what it's all pointing to. This is the promised restoration. Do you see? Listen, uh, turn with me to Isaiah. We've got time. Turn with me, listen fast. Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. And you're going to see here, very similar language here, that Revelation picks up on and repeats. And the reason that Revelation repeats this language is because Revelation shows us the fulfillment of this very text. Isaiah 49, beginning in verse 8. Thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time, I've heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages. So that, verse 9, you may say to the prisoners, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the roads and their pastures shall be on all desolate heights. Verse 10, they shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them, for he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water, he will guide them. I will make each of my mountains a road. My highways shall be elevated. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west and these from the land of Sinem. Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth. Break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. If you think that restoration is nothing more than the reconstitution of an ethnically Jewish people, you are missing the point of the Bible. You're missing the point. You've missed the universe. Revelation chapter 7 Verse 16, verse 16, they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. You recognize that language? This is a fulfillment. What you're seeing in Revelation chapter 7 is a fulfillment of God's promises given all the way back in Isaiah. 700 years before the time of Christ, all the way back in Isaiah. Verse 17, because the lamb, who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God provides for them. God protects them. God preserves them through the great tribulation. He 
will satisfy us entirely for an eternity in his presence in the new heavens and the new earth. It's an awesome thought, isn't it? An awesome picture. The interlude there in chapter 7 in the book of Revelation is intended to encourage us in our time of tribulation. No matter what difficulty you face, what persecution you face, listen, you ever get concerned about that stuff? Hebrews says to consider him who endured such hostility against himself at the hands of sinners. Lest you become weary or lest you become discouraged in your own souls, consider him who endured that kind of hostility against himself. We're to consider the Lord Jesus Christ. This chapter, this interlude, is meant to encourage the church in our own time of testing. The Lord Jesus Christ endured for us. We are to endure through our time of testing for his name's sake. We're to endure as a faithful and persevering witness for the Lord Jesus Christ without compromise, without turning back, without turning to the right hand or to the left hand. We're to continue the work that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us to do. And even in the face of great suffering, great difficulty, great adversity, brothers and sisters, we must endure. And it is he who endures that is made to walk with him in white. And why is that? It's because that endurance, that endurance, that perseverance indicates the genuineness of a true and saving faith, a faith through which we have had the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ given to us as a gift of God's grace and by which we are, ourselves are seen to be righteous in his sight. It's going to be because of Jesus Christ that we're able to stand around the throne in that multitude and worship him in that day. Amen? For that, we must praise him and serve him and keep going. All right? Okay, pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, help us. We are weak. You know our frame, Lord, that we are but dust. Uh, and in the face of difficulty, uh, we're often tempted to shrink back. Woefully, uh, shamefully, Lord, we have many times uh, turned back or shrunk back uh, in the face of uh, fear of man or in the, in the face of difficulty or suffering. We've often found to be uh, faithless in uh, the face of difficulty. But Lord, we know, we're, we celebrate, we rejoice, we extol you that uh, when we are faithless, you are faithful and you cannot deny yourself. And that, Lord, you strengthen us by your spirit to endure to the end. And we, uh, Lord, express our faith and trust uh, in you for that. And we express, acknowledge our great dependence upon you for that. Apart from you, we can do absolutely nothing. And apart from you, Lord, we would certainly um, fail, would certainly uh, turn back, wander away. Uh, grateful to you, Lord, to know that our preservation is not in our own hands, but in the power of the living God who will hold us. And we uh, rejoice um, to believe that you were able to keep that which we've committed to you against that day. And pray, Lord, that you will do just that. Preserve us by your strength. Preserve us by your spirit. Enable us, Lord, to live for you. And enable us, the Lord, uh, to live for you, uh, encouraged by these texts, not to turn away from suffering or the circumstances that we find ourselves in, but to, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to lean in, uh, trusting that he will carry us through it for his glory. We love you. We thank you, Lord, for this encouragement that this gives to the church, gives to your people. Pray that we would live for you in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. 
For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.